0: Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Joining us now in Paris is Jean-Claude Trichet. He doesn't really need much of an introduction. Former ECB president and now honorary chairman of the Group of 30. Also with us in New York is Willem Bauter, chief economist of Citi. Monsieur Trichet, welcome to the program. Thank you you so much for coming on. Um, Let's assume that the polls are right. Let's assume that we get something like 68% for President Macron on Sunday. What happened next? What kind of message does a President Macron give to France and Europe?
2: I think, uh, first of all, uh, we have to wait for the election. As uh, Mr. Macron said himself, of course, uh, it's never uh,
1: a done deal. win in yeah. advance,
2: it's not a done deal. Uh, the polls are very positive and uh, I uh, think really uh, that uh, Mr. Macron will have probably a very powerful mandate to reform the country because it was his own you know, view uh, since uh, he started uh, to engage in politics fancy that it's a man who was not known by the French only two years and a half ago and uh, is perhaps uh, the next future president and perhaps will have a majority according to certain survey and polls that we have on the parliamentary election. It is absolutely clear that uh, it, if he has this strong mandate, uh, he will have a majority in the parliament, in my view, and then, of course, all uh, kind of reforms that are overdue in france could start
1: so we'll talk about deficits and budget fiscal rules in a second but Mr. Trichet, why do the french not recognize themselves anymore in the old parties in in the classic um right versus left are they have they become too centrist
2: well uh, again the um Damage that uh, a large deal of public spendings on top of the average of the G7 countries, on top of the average of the European countries, is something which is not considered by a lot of, uh, of political parties as absolutely negative for France and for, for job creation. So the uh, debate which uh, we had be- between Macron and uh, Marine Le Pen showed very clearly that Macron was attached to sound policies, was attached to finance everything that would be uh, spent and uh, was uh, certainly with the intention of respecting the rules. And I, I trust that it is something which is very important.
0: Mr. Truchet, good morning from New York. As we look at this sea change in the culture, the generational change in France, can we get a France that's a little more fiscally responsible? You and Mr. Doisenberg at ECB had to worry about a France that would spend too much money where the government was too big, too big for all of France. Can they get more responsible with a President Macron?
2: I think so. Frankly speaking, it's a pleasure, of course, to, to talk to you. Tom. Uh, I, I really think so. I think that uh, the message that uh, Macron gave was that we have to respect uh, the rules. Of course, he's calling also for reform, and I think he's right. He's calling for a minister of finance of the euro area. I myself am in full agreement with that. He's calling for uh, uh, new reforms as regards also the budget uh, of the euro area that would be created. But respecting the rule, we have the Stability and Growth Pact, and it is important, of course, that uh, uh, France uh, applies In his own interest, it is not a question of, uh, you know, pleasing partners, it's a question of being sure that we do all what we can uh, to create jobs and uh, and grow. And I think that uh, we can be uh, reasonably confident that there has been a change in the overall position of public opinion in France. But we will see and nothing is done yet.
0: What can he do about a better trade policy for France? Not only trade with the rest of the continent, but trade with the rest of the world, and even I may suggest trade with the United Kingdom. What can be a new trade policy for France?
2: Well, as you know, the trade policy is uh, uh, influenced by each particular government, of course, but is done at the level of the single market and of the euro area and, uh, of course, the European Union as a whole. So, from that standpoint, I expect France to be uh, open, of course, uh, as was said very, very clearly, to uh, global trade and, uh, of course, European trade. That being said, of course, uh, with the appropriate influence for uh, the deals to be fair. And uh, it is clearly what uh, what has been said. It seems to me very, very uh, openly and, and frankly in particular in the debate, but also in the various declarations of the candidate.
1: But, Monsieur Trichet, and paper, right, the reforms are strong. But what has changed since François Hollande promised the same fiscal rule changes back in 2012? Is Europe really ready to sit down at a table and say, you know, let's start from scratch and think exactly what we want to do on fiscal?
2: Well, again, we will see exactly what is the policy of the new president and of the new government, because we will have also a government. So uh, a lot of things have to be done. What is clear is that there is a a very, very powerful will on the side of the new possible French government and president, and on the side of the German partners also, and the other partners in Europe, to discuss. And uh, not to discuss uh, only to settle uh, the present, Mm -hmm. but also to have a view of the future and of the reform that are at stake and of the new course of action for Europe as a whole. So uh, from that standpoint I think that uh, we are in circumstances that are probably the best since quite a long period of time because you remember at the very beginning of the Hollande uh, mandate there was not, not such a close relationship. Potential right. close relationship between Germany and France and the other partners.
0: Well, let me bring in our partner from the Netherlands with us, is Jean-Claude Trichet today, folks, he is Willem Bauder. He is professor of the London School of Economics and of course head of all economics at Citigroup. Professor, a question for Mr. Trichet, please. Um, yes, Mr. Trichet. France still spends well over 50% of GDP in the public sector. With all the talk about pension reform and labor market reform, that number has to get much closer to 45% for France to become a dynamic economy. Do you see any chance that there will be a coalition in France that will not be frustrated by the losers of such a drastic reduction in the size of the public sector? Is there any hope that France will not look like Scandinavia in terms of public spending but more like the euro area average?
2: Well, we, again, uh, I think that you're absolutely right. This is one of the dimensions of reform which is very important. Diminish the public spendings as a proportion of GDP, which are much higher than the average. And second, we have also the structural reforms and the labor market uh, appropriate uh, uh, reform. And uh, we also have the cost competitiveness of the country, of course, of the economy. But on the first point, I think that uh, this idea that it is, of course, a progressive uh, march in the direction of diminishing public spendings as a proportion of GDP, as Sweden for instance did, a, a number of countries proved that it was possible, of course it cannot be done overnight, but the winners in such uh, an orientation are the unemployed, because it's absolutely clear that the weight of these uh, public spendings is much too high and hamper the appropriate competitiveness of the economy so the winners will be the unemployed young people and also all the unemployed in France
1: Jean-Claude Trichet thank you so much for now Jean-Claude Trichet there the former ECB president and Willem Bauter
0: Bloomberg Surveillance, David Gur and Tom Keane Of course, much to talk about here. Jim Glassman and Bill Gross will join us. And, always, Alan Kruger joins us from Princeton University. And, Alan, we must take a moment on the passing and uh, the last day, the death of William Baumol of Princeton University, absolutely definitive, the giant of what I would call entrepreneurial uh, economics. His book, his textbook with Alan Blinder is truly uh, classic, uh, what did he mean for the students of Princeton University? I was mesmerized at how gentle and yet how distinct and assertive his lecturing was.
3: Well, Will Bama was a giant in the field of economics, and he was truly a Renaissance man. Yes. He was 95 years old. Uh, he moved at the end of his career from Princeton to NYU, so it's more a loss for the But he, come on, he's associated,
0: I mean, that's true for NYU, but he is forever associated with your and Burton Malkiel's. Well, uh, he, he was, uh,
3: he was at Princeton 42 years. I, I interviewed him, Tom, in 2001, um, In the Journal of Economic Perspectives, which I tweeted out yesterday in Mm -hmm. case people wanted to read, he was truly a remarkable man, a remarkable career, made lasting contributions to economics. I was inspired by his work. His
0: humility was wonderful. He was a master student at LSC, and Lionel Robbins, I believe – I may be wrong in this, but I believe the story is Robbins, the giant of LSC, personally intervened to make him a Ph.D. candidate. He was so good at speaking. Well,
3: in this interview, he told that story where he first applied and they had never heard of City College. So he was turned down and he applied a second time and Lionel Robbins intervened and he said, This man really wants to come here. And the end of three weeks, they had him join the faculty.
0: Yeah, I mean, that was the giant sense of it. His spirit to me, and there's so many things, but almost cost disease and the rest of it, and work with Tobin and, and others, to me, it was his fearlessness about don't forget the entrepreneur, which dovetails into your work on labor economics. How did he describe where the entrepreneur fits in to price and firm?
3: Well, his contributions in industrial organization, I think, were quite significant. The work he did on contestable markets, where you have a natural monopoly, yet you still want government regulation so that you have the degree of competition that's optimal. Um, And that enabled... Uh, I think, many, many firms to develop new technology because often the technology was the barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. He worked on ways for firms to collaborate on R&D uh, without colluding uh, to um, monopolize a market. Um, so I think every American is benefiting from the work that he did. Yeah. Uh, the work he did on cost disease, which you mentioned, is relevant today for healthcare reform. You know, he was involved in, in the mid 90s in the Clinton health care effort. Right. And he explained that the reason why health care costs are growing so quickly is that there's been faster productivity growth outside of health care. Uh, and one impact of his model or implication of his model is that the government services that are provided, which tend to have slower productivity growth, are going to become more costly well, over time.
0: William Baumall dead at 95, and we of course speak uh, soon to Alan Blinder of Princeton, who is so associated with uh, Professor Obama's effort at education. Alan Krueger, very quickly here Obamacare, Trump care, does it matter to our listeners?
3: Well, I think it ma- matters to all Americans. It certainly, it matters to the 24 million Americans who would lose their health insurance uh, under the bill that passed the House <laughs> yesterday, but it matters uh, to everyone else because it will affect our costs. Um, And, you know, the estimates are for a large number of Americans, the net cost of health insurance would be significantly higher under this bill.
0: Do you presume on first blush that the CBO scoring will be remarkably like the previous CBO scoring? I don't see how it could be all that different. From what I understand of
3: the bill, they're quite Mm -hmm. similar.
0: Yeah. Let's come back. Alan Kruger with us. Thank you so much for those comments on Professor uh, Baumol. That's one of the special things about surveillance, folks, is – Our guest quality is so good that when someone uh, dies within the realm of economics, finance and investment, it's amazing the perspective we hope to deliver to you when we hear uh, this news. If you have kids, this is the most important conversation of the day. Alan Kruger is at Princeton University and he has been eclectic writing on terrorism, his acclaim with David Card on the minimum wage and Professor Krueger, here's a single sentence. I take it from Jeff Guo over at the Washington Post. Professor Krueger finds that 44 percent of male prime age labor force dropouts say they took pain medication the day prior. Your work on opioid is not a lot of political blather. It is careful and accurate analysis of the drugs and dropouts. In America, what's the policy prescription to get us away from heroin and the opioids that are destroying so much, particularly of the Midwest?
3: Uh, First of all, I think I might use that as a title for a paper that I'm writing on drugs and dropouts. We'll Um, take
0: the surveillance royalty from you in
3: place. Uh, Brookings will hand that right over to (laughs) you. Um, You know, there's not an easy answer. There are, I think, many components to the answer. First is to prevent the problem in the first place. And if we could keep people in the labor force, if we can keep them engaged, if we can keep the unemployed searching for a job, if we can uh, help those who are on the margins of the labor market to even volunteer so that they are learning new skills and staying engaged and networking, uh, I think that is one important step to prevent the problem from growing. Uh, Where the problem exists, especially for those who are on disability insurance and receiving Medicare, uh, something like 45% of them receive opioid prescriptions during the course of the year. Uh, I think we need to use rehabilitation. We need to use treatment. We need physical therapy in many cases. Yeah, but they need cases. jobs.
0: Do, do you have in your history, going back to Lyndon, Lyndon Baines Johnson, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and others, is there an incentive prescription to create investment for lower education, goods-producing jobs in America. They're not going to go to Princeton. They're not going to work for pick-your-accounting firm or legal firm. They're not going to do radio here in New York. Where does that policy prescription come to help people in West Virginia, Ohio, Kentucky, and westward?
3: This is why it's a tragedy. We weren't able to invest more in infrastructure in America. We need to rebuild our roads and our highways and bridges. President Obama tried for eight years to ramp up infrastructure Agreed. spending. Agreed. President Trump will try. And I wish him luck in, in succeeding in that because I think that will help our country and I think it will improve our competitiveness in the future and just as importantly help this demographic that you're discussing.
4: When you, when you look at the field of economics and the field of policy today, you make a Venn diagram of, of politics and policy. How much crossover is there? Having gone through this fight recently here over health care reform, you talked to doctors, you talk to people in health insurance, talk to people at health uh, companies, healthcare companies. There's a sense that policy isn't driving it. How do you get back to a point where the conversation in Washington is less focused on the politics and more on the policy? Well, today, the overlap in the Venn diagrams is a null set. Mm.
3: And I once went back and I went through all of the issues I worked on when I worked for President Obama. And I reviewed what evidence did we look at? What type of evidence? Was it relevant? And it was quite an impressive list. The current administration seems to be intimidated by experts. Experts aren't always right, but I think we do have something to add. Uh, I think it's unfortunate the way that President Trump has criticized federal statistics. The impartial civil servants who toil away uh, earn too little, in my view. They're overworked, in my view. They do the best job they can, uh, yet attacking the unemployment rate, um, uh, other uh, economic measures, I think, is very counterproductive. And I think it's... uh, uh, symbolic of the disdain for using evidence and
4: policy development. Tom asked a very important question about young people and, and drug addiction. How about just stepping back from that more broadly? Uh, you teach at a college. Uh, you, you interact with a lot of young people. How does the labor market look for uh, the young men and women who will be graduating school here over these next few weeks? Well, I think the job market has clearly picked up
3: over the last seven years, and I think we're seeing many manifestations of that. One is that more students are going directly to work instead of on to graduate school uh, first. For older workers, however, I think they're still struggling. And where we're seeing, I think, uh, a tremendous difficulty are uh, workers in their 50s, early 60s who lose a job. and They're finding a lot of difficulty getting a W-2 traditional job, and many of them are hanging up their own shingle, uh, which can have some benefits, uh, but they're not necessarily prepared for being their own boss.
0: In hindsight... When you look at tax revenues as a percent of GDP, and let's not get carried away, it's the chart is clear, folks, it's elevated, but not that much. Were taxes raised too much within the era of Obama? Could they tweak it a little bit lower?
3: Well, you know, I think taxes should be as low as possible, but high enough to pay for the services that the public demands. And the public demands a lot of services. Yeah, but we're
0: off-trend. If I'm a Republican sitting here, like the two congressmen I interviewed in Washington, the fact of the matter is, Professor, we're off-trend. We're, we're, we're elevated.
3: We're, we're, we're certainly not in an outlier position compared Agreed. to our fair, history. Fair. And, Tom, the proof of the pudding is in the economic recovery. You know, people said that the tax increases fair. that Obamacare would destroy jobs. Well, what about those 15 and a half million jobs that were created over the last seven and a half years? So you're telling me to raise years. more
0: taxes to create more jobs? I'm uh, saying. I, <laughs> I, I get, get my, can you get my, my red hat, please, and bring it in here?
3: <laughs> you know, I, by the way, Tom, I fought for years for corporate tax reform. I think our corporate tax system is very uh, inefficient.
0: So. Can we say that Kruger and Trump are on common ground here?
3: Well, I think we're on common ground in that we say that we should have corporate tax reform. Now, the nature of the reform is a bit different, and I think we can reform our system and remain revenue neutral. Uh,
4: what did you make of the, the one-pager, as it's called, that the, the White House handed out uh, after 100 days uh, in office, the the plan, the principles for tax reform? Uh, you know, you say there's this commonality of you and the administration being in favor of corporate tax reform. Did you see anything in the, the detail I'm not going to say it was granular detail, in the detail on that sheet uh, where where you think the the administration is headed in the right direction? Look, that was rushed out. And I felt sorry for the uh, professional uh, career
3: employees at the Treasury Department. Um, It's not the type of work product they're accustomed to producing. Um, I think uh, the idea of lowering the corporate tax rate and getting rid of some of the preferences that we have to pay for that, I think that makes a lot of sense. The 15% tax rate for pass-through companies, I think, would be uh, extremely abused. Uh, so uh, I had a lot of concerns. Um, there were no budget numbers that came along with the proposal, which is, which is kind of remarkable. Um, how was one supposed to consider a proposal which would probably, you know, add trillions and trillions of dollars to the deficit without having the administration do that type of analysis? I don't know how they could, in, in good faith, say that this is their proposal if they haven't done that type of analysis. And if they did that type of analysis,
4: why wouldn't they share it with the American people so we could evaluate it? Let me get us back here to Jobs Day in the, the last couple of minutes we have with you. Uh, I spoke with the Secretary of Commerce earlier this week, and he was very proud to talk about the efforts the administration is working on when it comes to training. Uh, going back to that meeting with Chancellor Angela Merkel when she was at the White House, the trip to Ivanka Trump Daughter and advisor to the president took to Germany to meet with uh, German executives to see how they train workers and keep workers at those companies. Is that a step in the right direction, do you think? What's been the biggest hurdle to getting uh, training programs built into our corporate structures here in the U.S. as they are in Germany? I think it is a step in the right direction, but Germany also mandates that companies
3: spend a certain share of their budget on training. And I don't see the current administration interested in that type of an idea. Uh, Also, in the president's budget outline, it wasn't really a budget proposal, he cuts job training. So uh, I think there are many things we can do. I would like to see a much better school to work training program where students who are not at the time college-bound, they might be college-bound later on, can apprentice with companies, uh, can learn skills while they're going to school. I think that strengthens both their schoolwork and their ability to navigate the job market.
0: Alan Kruger, thank you so much, particularly for those kind Mm -hmm. comments on his colleague at Princeton, William Baumol, now at New York University, uh, dead at 95 uh, this day. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated Member, SIPC. There's something new from Bloomberg. It's called Lens. Starting right now, you can use the Bloomberg iOS app off your iPhone or iPad or our new Google Chrome extension to read any news story on any website, scan it, and then instantly see the news stories relevant market data from Bloomberg. In addition, see all the bios of the key people mentioned in the story. It's called Lens, and it is just that, a lens into the people and the data of any story you may be reading. Again, Lens brings you the power of Bloomberg's news and data. Download our iOS app or search for the Bloomberg extension at the Chrome store to try Lens out. Learn more at Bloomberg.com slash Lens. Chip Glassman of Northwestern and J.P. Morgan with us today. We we're just speaking with Alan Kruger about the death of William Baumol of Princeton yeah, University and New York University. And as Professor Kruger, of course, rightly mentioned, his work is front and center in your work, and frankly, the work of every politician in Washington on health care. It's called Baumol's Cost Disease, and it's where you raise wages Because you got to raise wages, but there's no productivity gain, and bad things happen. Is that where we are right now?
5: Uh, I don't think so. I think that's where we were in the 1970s and the early 1980s. But I think people – we live in a more competitive world, so companies aren't as quick to grant wage increases if they can't be matched by productivity improvements. So I don't really think that's our problem today, but it is a problem for the worker because it is productivity that really lifts our living standards and – in our yeah. real wages.
0: I talked to Ben Bernanke and let me ask you the same question, which part of productivity are we most challenged by? Is it capital dynamics, labor dynamics, or is it something unknowable like all this technology we're dealing with I, I each think, and every day?
5: I think it's unknowable because here here we have a massive amount of innovation going on in the technology sector. And, in fact, we all think that they're not really measuring that properly. But then, on the other hand, we're not seeing the the productivity gains that you, you expect from innovation. I have a feeling it's just really volatile and random, and it takes time for us to sort of milk the benefits of all this innovation. And there's so much going on, maybe that's that's part of the issue. But um, I, I wouldn't be writing obits yet for productivity because I think – Looking around, it just feels like we're living at a time of rapid innovation. And it it just, you know, whether that show, you know, how long does that take to show up? I don't know. It could be a decade.
4: Chris Rupke writing yesterday that uh, the productivity read was a big ouch for the economy, great big ouch for the economy, plainly sputtering in the first quarter as we we start the year. Uh, yeah, but that's all because of the bizarre
5: not-to-be-believed GDP estimate that the things slow down. Productivity out the GDP. I don't even think it's transitory, frankly. I think it's fake slowdown. Mm -hmm. Because the truth is if there's a seasonal distortion as the BEA and everybody thinks, including the Fed, then it's not really transitory, it's mismeasurement of the quarterly GDP figures. And I think that's what's so useful about the labor market data. You sort of have two different perspectives on the economy. And interestingly the labor market data suggested that things accelerated, at least through February. We had a soft March payroll figure, but the employment picture looks quite good. The GDP figure figure does not. And this is, by the way, probably going to be corrected when you look at the second quarter or third quarter GDP. We'll, we'll see everything kind of line up again.
4: In the In the panoply of economic data giving you some indication of growth in this economy, how much does GDP matter to you given that Uh, It it can be too volatile.
5: It doesn't matter at all to me. Quarterly figures, I I don't really pay attention to. The one thing I pay most attention to is jobless claims because they are the most accurate indicator we have of the pulse of the economy. It only tells you what's going on with the businesses that are operating. And what we've seen so far in the first quarter, uh, the trends, you know, it's a steady economy. And in fact, if anything, it feels like the economy is still growing a little faster than trend, thank God, Mm. because we still have some populations of people out there who – dropped out, they were discouraged and they're coming back in. We need we need a little bit more
4: above-trend growth to get everybody back to work. We well, were talking with uh, Professor Kruger just a moment ago about job opportunity for new graduates of, of colleges and universities, a lot of them facing that crude reality in just a couple of, of weeks here. Let me go beyond the headline numbers just a little bit here as well. You look at employment among African-Americans, it's still you know what, upwards of 8%. Why have we not been able to target smaller sectors or parts of the economy, different demographic groups now that this recovery has continued for as long as it has been, how, how, where does that deficit come from?
5: Well, it it always happens, right? If you look at unemployment by level of education or um, ethnic background, mm. what well, you always see that pattern, and I think that that's why the best thing that we can do, I mean, the only thing that we can really do is make sure that uh, the macro economy continues to recover. And I think a lot of those problems start to get fixed. But the, but the truth is, looking deeper, it's really about education and lack of education, lack of skills, um, and a lot of those jobs are not in the urban areas where people need the jobs. Is the problem? It's, it's tough to it's tough to commute to the jobs. Yeah. So I think this is a chronic problem mm-hmm. and a problem that we always have uh, in every cycle. Yeah.
0: Way for us, and this goes back to Lawrence Summers' idea of secular stagnation, which is. A secular view versus a cyclical view. Are we conflating the two ideas too much? Probably. Yeah, because the, we're all because, guilty of this.
5: Yeah, because the demographics, you know, the problem is the very negative view that everybody had about the economy comes from this slow growth we've been getting. Well, the slow growth didn't prevent us from getting back on our feet. And it hasn't prevented the U.S. living standard from rising. We're now at record levels. The problem is um, the slow growth is not really it, – it's about demographics, a lot of it. And so it's very easy to confuse the cycle strains mm-hmm. with all the other stuff that's going on, the, the, the disruption from innovation, the globalization, the demographic shift. And I think that's the problem that we, we're still thinking, well, this is about the cycle. Truth is, we're pretty much recovered. We're not fully recovered, but we're pretty much there. Most people have a job. Four and a half percent unemployment's not bad. There are still are pockets of unemployed. But the truth is the cycle is behind us. And now we're the stresses that we're feeling are more related to these things that have been going on long before the the downturn in 2008.
4: Let's ask you about uh, economic promise here after the the election. And uh, we were talking with Phil and Bounder at the top of the show about Trumponomics and and what we can read into Trumponomics from what we saw on Capitol Hill this week, the vote on uh, another iteration of of healthcare reform. Uh, you note in a recent uh, recent note that uh, equity investors have been patient. Why do you think they've been so patient here, and how long do you, do, do you expect they will be? Yeah, yeah you know, that's interesting, because I I think what we're, what we're learning in the markets is that
5: this This is not so easy, coming up with all these grand ideas, tax reform and infrastructure spending, healthcare reform. We could barely get it out of the house. I think what's going on in the equity market, though, is it's not that they're counting so much on something specific through the legislative process. It's more that they feel that the mindset in Washington is turning more pro-growth. I imagine that must be what's going on. And so if that's the case, I think their patience is probably longer than we think. I don't know. You know, I think after a year or so, if you don't see any more progress, maybe that's an issue. Yeah.
0: What are you going to look for today? I mean, we're supposed to do this in the next section. Uh, we've got so many distractions going. On. What are you going to look for? Today? Yeah,
5: somewhere between one hundred seventy-five and two hundred thousand. The last month was weird, and particularly Agreed. in contrast to ADB, yeah. I don't get. I don't really. I don't really know what's going yeah. on. People think it's weather. I don't know.
0: Is it because, and we're back to forty-five dollars a barrel? The oil hunk of the American economy gets. In the way of all the smoothness, the vectors, the gradients that you want to deal with?
5: You know, it could down the road. It's only very recently that oil pulled back and that's sort of leaving a cloud over the market but the truth is the oil sector still has been picking up quite a bit and until very recently i think if oil prices don't sort of get back to like that fifty dollar range maybe this is going to be a drag The, the odd thing about oil though is we all tend to react to it like this is a bad thing for the u.s economy when oil prices go down it's a bad thing for the energy sector it's a good thing for americans And, in fact, we as a country still use twice as much oil as we produce. So the problem is it's hard to see what consumers are doing, how they're spending their windfall. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why equity investors, when they see oil prices go down, they think negative because they can't quite see where the offsetting benefits are.
4: Jim Glassman with us here on Jobs Day. We're just a few minutes away from getting that data from the the Labor Department and uh, always value the perspective of Professor Kruger. Jim Glassman, Bill Gross will join us in just a little while. Are Uh, we lucky or what? We're very lucky. I come off the TV (laughs) set this morning. I joked at the top of the show, it's the usual suspects, but we are very honored to have uh, each and every one of them here with us.
0: I come off the TV set just to give you a vignette, folks. It's a... you know, they take me down and they give me my well, I'm a walker to get, you know, over to radio. <laughs> but, um, there's Villain Bowder standing with Edward Morse. And I go, how good is this? We get to talk to the smart people from J.P. Morgan. We get to talk to John Tucker. I mean, you know. There's no.
4: There's no just he's upside, bringing you the walker. i apologize <laughs> in advance for,
5: for that. He's the downer with the traffic flow.
4: <laughs> yeah. Well, he's, we're working on it uh, this morning. We're joined by James Glassman here in our studios, uh, head economist for commercial banking at J.P. Morgan Chase. We talk a lot about uncertainty and the degree to which that's weighing on investors, how it's weighing on the economy generally. How about the labor market? Are there are there people reluctant to hire because they don't know what's going to happen with regulation or with taxes? Say. I don't think so. You know,
5: uh, uh, frankly, we're always dealing with uncertainty. I don't know a time that we weren't dealing with uncertainty. And I think what's happening is when, work, when employers see what's going on in the job market, everybody has noticed we're getting job growth pretty decent, up $16 million in the last several years, these last eight years. So what that's doing is it's making people realize they need to get ahead of their staff needs. And so I think regardless of the uncertainty, they realize that it's going to get harder and harder to find people. And so it makes people want to look harder for folks. So I think that's really been a real change in attitude about hiring and maybe and maybe we're that maybe that's one reason why we're getting a little more hiring than you might expect with the kind of growth we get.
4: What can you tell from looking at layoffs? Average number of layoffs. What does that figure tell you about the the economy?
5: They're just about as low as I've ever seen them mm-hmm. and relative to the size of the labor force, uh nothing going on. The jobless claims trend uh is telling you that the there's nothing bad going on in the economy that in fact if anything we're still probably growing faster than our trend if there was a problem somewhere you would see layoffs picking up a little bit and you know we're we're, it's a it's a really spectacular view a very flattering view of the economy what you see from the from the layoff story
4: when you look at, at this labor market as a whole what are the pockets or the corners of it that are still lagging be that demographic uh, be that in terms of educational attainment, w- w- what still needs improvement? Well, there's two things, really. Uh, there still
5: are uh, just a few folks who are working – a few p- folks more than normal who are working part-time involuntarily. That problem is rapidly disappearing, though. I think that's a story about family-owned businesses yeah. and, th- and then the young people from 25 to 45-year-olds, people in their prime working years. A lot of folks got discouraged. During the recession, about 3 million dropped out. That number has now come down to about 1.5 million. So people are coming back in. But I would say we still have a a year's worth of good job growth that we need to get all those people back in. About a million and a half young people still to come back in, living with family, again, still in school
4: maybe.
0: Yeah, but in the acclaimed James Glassman PowerPoint, which is treasured and kept under luck
4: and key by Mr. Diamond, is the (laughs)
0: invisible unemployment. What do you mean by invisible unemployment?
5: The folks who just gave up, dropped out, and did something else, those smart ones went back to school for special job skills. They don't show up as unemployed because if I give up looking for a job, yeah. I'm not going to show up okay. in any service. So
0: if a Trumpian goose of nominal GDP of 50 basis points, half a percentage point, does that mean anything to your invisible unemployment? Yeah, that helps to
5: pull them back. You, you think so? Yeah. Definitely. They
0: wake up in the morning and go, geez, I feel better. I just well, you know, got they, a tweet from the president. They start to hear.
5: Their friends are telling them, hey, there's a job here. Um, and, and I think that's how it happens. The the kids find out that there's opportunities. And you're starting to see that yeah. happen. The participation of young people now, okay. it's coming back in.
0: The farthest west I've been is 10th Avenue. You actually traveled. <laughs> you see a lot of you see help wanted like signs out there. Cover. They do,
5: actually. Yeah. Uh, and in places that I always wondered, how, do you, how would you ever find somebody here? Uh, there, you know, and the fact that you're posting help wanted means it must be you must be desperate, because there, there's, there's many ways of finding jobs. No,
4: is I, that desperation I, translating to higher wages? In other words, is this an, an employees market?
5: In technology, in some markets, there there are stories, but overall, not yet.
4: Not on 10th Avenue. Yeah. Not in the bodega on 10th yeah. Avenue. You've been to 10th Avenue, Tom? Twice. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> 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 Let me ask you about manufacturing. There, there is this clarion from this administration about bringing manufacturing jobs back. How does the manufacturing sector look in this country uh, at this point in terms of its yeah, its relative health?
5: Well, it's been hit by the all that was going on in the energy sector when energy prices came down. Uh, all the activity related to energy kind of died, and CapEx slowed down, industrial production. That began to change late last year as activity picked up again. So we'll see. You know, but, but, the big, but the big wind hitting manufacturing is all about – innovation and technology. And all you got to do is go to an auto plant in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, just to see what's going on. You don't see too many human beings.
0: Yeah, it's a huge issue and sustains through this uh, generational shift. We have a generational constancy on Jobs Day. The perspective of James Glassman, of J.P. Morgan, we do that now. He will stay with us through the statistics we'll see in five and a half uh, minutes. And then perspective from Janus Capital and Bill Gross. He has been most generous Uh, to talk to us about the central bank of this nation, and, of course, the impact on fixed
4: income. Jobs Day. Let's get straight to the numbers here, the April numbers from the Labor Department. Starting with the change in non-farm payrolls, survey was 190,000. The actual read, 211,000. But catching my eye here is the revision for the March numbers, revised down from what was a disappointing number, 98,000, revised down to 79,000. Looking at the unemployment rate here, 4.6 percent. The survey was four point, rather sorry. Survey was 4.6 percent, the actual 4.4 percent. Uh, what do you make of there's yeah, so a little down. bit of a
0: churn here. Yield's moving a little bit. I don't see that much of a market movement. I mean, still focused on uh, oil, but wage growth isn't all that good. I mean, yeah. let's start with the unemployment rate. Jim Glassman with J.P. Morgan with us. 4.6% uh, was a survey, a lovely 4.4%, yeah. but you know that's not for good reasons, right?
5: Yeah, not with, not people are disappearing. Um, but still, we're kind of in that zone of... Um, what the Fed thinks of as full employment. So I think they'll be encouraged by the report. It, it you know it yeah. tells you we're not quite there yet, but I think it keeps them on board with the idea of slowly right. getting their funds rate right back up
0: to net different. revision negative six is certainly not what you want to yeah. see. Almost like a second derivative will pop up, and in wage growth, uh, you know it's it's just a mixed store year over year hourly earnings. 2.5% with a bad uh, revision. Uh, is the average hourly earnings number, Jim Glassman, is is it a blue-collar statistic or does it capture all of America?
5: Well, it doesn't capture all of America and it doesn't capture all of pay. So there's a lot of benefits and health care uh, insurance premiums and things like that that are not in there. But uh, you know, let, yeah. remember this thing was stuck at two percent forever. Fair. So it's come up a little bit.
0: Look and at the labor force change, which goes right into that unemployment rate. Next to nothing. Three hundred and forty thousand, then one hundred and forty-five thousand. Those are buoyant numbers in a terrible twelve thousand. Yeah. But we've around.
5: had you know these numbers are very volatile on the monthly basis. Fair. We had a surge yes. of labor force uh, earlier in the year, so it's hard to tell. Sometimes you need about six months behind you to see what's really going on with these numbers. They get very volatile.
0: How do you link this into the productivity reports that we saw the other day? Quickly here, please.
5: Well, you know, uh, slow productivity means that's what's the restraint on pay. So if productivity were booming, we would be seeing stronger gains in average hourly earnings, probably.
0: Okay. Jim Glassman with us with J.P. Morgan. And we say thank you uh, for that. And now joining us, Bill Gross. He is with Janus Capital. We welcome all on Bloomberg Television into our cozy abode, our radio (laughs) studios here, David Gura and Tom Keen to speak to Mr. Gross. Uh, Bill, wonderful to speak to you again, and we really value your being with us each and every Jobs Day. I'm going to suggest, even though there's not much market action, when you look at last month's moldy report, this is certainly not the bang-up report the job optimists would have wanted to see.
6: Well, the, the, certainly not in terms of wages. Uh, in, in, in terms of the potential for the Fed to uh, be a little stronger and a little more hawkish, uh, you know, the, the jobs number I think is a good number, and the, the U six, the underemployment yes. number, came down uh, from eight six to from eight nine to eight six, which is a pretty substantial change. So there's something in there for everybody. Uh, to me, it, it simply suggests that the Fed continues on its course of of gradual increases, and that, of course, is the The primary question, what does gradual mean? To the market, gradual means like uh, 40 basis points for the year. And to the Fed, in terms of dots, it means 50 to 75. And there's the conundrum.
0: As you know, Chair Yellen does focus on this labor report. Does she need to focus on in her usual month-to-month and quarter-to-quarter way? Or does she really need to focus away from the jobs report on a lot, lot of other themes within our American economy? Well, I think she needs to
6: focus away. There's been a number of uh, reports, supportive reports, that suggest that uh, low and negative interest rates do strange things as they uh, approach or punch through the zero bound. I've been talking about that for several years, and I don't think the Fed or other central banks really focus on it Mm -hmm. enough. The fact that low low interest rates keep zombie corporations alive, and that feeds into your question for productivity. Uh, The fact that low interest rates destroy... You know, very productive business models like insurance companies and pension funds and savings in general. And, and so the Fed, to my way of thinking, is a model-driven uh, type of institution, and their models right. are outdated. So uh, they need to get into the future as opposed to come back from the past. Yeah,
0: Bill, we've got to go to the market dynamics right now from this important jobs report. And I want to go right to the research chase that's going on in the last 48 hours. Would you presume commodity dynamics that we've seen— and the worries about China, which are always there linked to commodities, fold right back to a central bank discussion of the United States of America, where maybe it's not a taper tantrum, but it's an oil tantrum. Is that what we're seeing if we presume a more restrictive Fed Well, you mentioned
6: China, and China's a tough one, uh, certainly, in terms of their policies and their credit creation. Uh, You know, China, to my way of thinking, a year ago uh, jumped up credit uh, to a 20% type of annual rate and created global growth um, more than expected. Now they tend to be um, tightening the reins, so to speak, but no one really knows Uh, about the shadow banking system in China, let alone the shadow banking system in the United States. I have a sense, though, that, uh, that credit is being restricted, that their short-term rate is moved up by two to 300 basis points, and that ultimately, that makes a difference on a global basis. And that's why you're seeing you know, oil prices, and that's why you're seeing other commodity prices come down by 5, 10, and in some cases 15%, simply because China as the, the growth creator and the credit creator is uh, simply slowing down.
4: Bill, we were talking with Willem Bowder a little earlier today from Citigroup, and he said he does not think that Trumponomics, uh, as it's come to be called has run its course. When, when you look at that uh, still nascent brand of economics, where do you think we are?
6: Well, I think it uh, it's still running its course in terms of markets and, and that's where you have to uh, that's where you have to discriminate between markets and the real economy. Obviously the real economy is only three or four months old in terms of uh, uh, Trump and the administration and the policies haven't had a chance to work yet, let alone to be Put into law, Uh, but I I think the potential, of course, for lower corporate tax rates, whatever that is, the potential for uh, deregulation in terms of uh, significant industries, the potential for um, uh, you know globalization, uh, you know, there's there's lots there that have affected markets and affected currencies, as you and Tom follow, uh, but the real economy is yet to to punch in. I think I'm a skeptic. I think that the real economy in the U.S. And, and globally, but the U.S. economy is a 2 percent number going forward and that it's a function of productivity and that productivity, you know, really can't be affected by corporate tax rates. Let's look at it this way. Let me finish the thought yeah. and then I'll let you ask another question. <laughs> um, you, you know, productivity is a function of investment and, and corporations have had lots of money. They can borrow money at the, the cheapest rate possible in in, in decades, but yet they failed to do that. and. So so cutting corporate taxes, giving them cash flow, letting them repatriate money from uh, outside the United States, will that do a lot of good in terms of investment? I don't think so. I don't think it'll make much of a difference. And so 2% real growth, uh, I think, is where we're headed.
4: Yeah, I think the, the saying goes, if uh, if, if ands and buts were candies and nuts, uh, every day would be, would be Christmas. I'm increasingly interested <laughs> in, in patience. How long someone like you is willing to give Washington, willing to give this administration to do something like tax reform or health care reform or regulatory reform?
6: Well, I think it gets down to David to the to, to the number to the real growth number. If it's three percent, if they can really recreate uh, a three percent type of economy, then investors can be patient, and they need to see that as we move along. We didn't see that in the first quarter. We're seeing a potential 4% uh, second quarter, so uh, still up in the air. But 3% is the number that risk markets, that equities, that uh, P-E ratios, that right. high yield spreads in terms of their compression are all based on. And, and so I think there's some disappointment ahead if it's two, and there's some uh, optimistic right. uh, uh, movement in terms of prices if it's three.
0: Bill Gross, very quickly here, how correlated are the markets right now? I was over at Newburger Berman yesterday talking with their good folks, and there was a real statement of the nudginess of the markets, the lack of correlation. How in lockstep are the different asset classes right now?
6: Well, I think they're in pretty lockstep. I mean, you can talk about the last three months in terms of the correlation, but to my way of thinking, I always go back to, to most asset prices, and almost all asset prices are correlated to the neutral uh, Fed funds rate mm-hmm. or to the existing Fed funds rate, the forward Fed funds rate, and from there, uh, we derive the, uh, you know, the Gordon discount model, the dividend discount model, and others, and so I, I think the correlation is really in terms of interest rates, and as long as we stay stable and relatively low, then markets. Can stay stable and relatively low, but there's risk there, and perhaps we can talk about that in the next no, segment.
0: Let's do that. We'll talk. It's like Uncle Wiggly, he's telling us what's going to happen <laughs> in the next chapter as well. Bill Gross with us with Janice at Capital and Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio uh, worldwide. Bill, uh, we are talking about the correlations within the market, and you were linking them to the anchor of central bank action, and yet the commodities are in free fall. How do you? How do you use commodity dynamics within your work? Are they an opportunity when they plunge like this to make alpha down the road? Do you go long oil? Do you go long Canada? Do you go long Looney rather? How do you play a commodity plunge?
6: Yeah, I, uh, in, in two ways, Tom. First, in terms of currencies, you look for a very undervalued currency. I I, I like the Mexican peso. I recognize their obvious problems in terms of uh, trumpian uh, policies going forward but i think it's uh, a very attractive situation and very volatile which makes it possible to you know to basically to sell puts on the mexican peso in terms of commodities what i look for and i'm a volatility seller at relatively high volatilities i look for those commodities that have been most recently volatile. Let's take gold for the last two or three days, you know, a pretty dramatic decline in terms of gold following on a pretty dramatic decline in real interest rates um, or a rise in real interest rates which produced that. And so um, gold, to my way of thinking, has a relatively high volatility. Um, Oil is creeping up there with this downdraft in the past few days. And so I rather than look for price distortions to go long or short, I look for higher volatility to sell on the wings and to take advantage of, uh, you know, of the mm-hmm. premiums as opposed to the potential price drop or price increase.
4: Tom touched upon this a, a few minutes ago uh, briefly, but when you look at oil right now, what do you think is, is driving the price lower? We were talking with Stephen Shork yesterday and he suggested that this had nothing to do with, with OPEC. It was a, a different story than that. What's your sense of what's motivating this downturn that we're seeing?
6: Well, you look to oil uh, both in terms of supply and demand. Sometimes the the, the supply is a mystery, especially with the uh, shale in the United States and the marginal price for uh, production. But you also look to demand. And to my way of thinking, you know, global demand for oil is a reflection of of uh, global growth and a reflection of potential, you know, Chinese. Growth, and we've talked about this 10 minutes ago, but I think the Chinese economy is in the process of slowing, raising credit, and that, in turn, reflects in terms of a lower oil price down the road. So um, both of those things, I, I don't think oil has a lot further to go. Um, you know, it's at uh, close to 45. Can it go down to 40? I suppose, but uh, I think we're in a zone here where, where oil can be. Uh, sold in terms of its volatility, uh, both at levels of uh, 50 plus and at levels of uh, 40 minus.
4: It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure and a privilege to talk with you on, on Jobs Day. And, and I wonder, aside from that being a good peg, how you, how you rate the importance of data on the labor economy when you look at the health of the U.S. economy uh, overall? In other words, when you're looking at all, at all of this data, this panoply of, of data, how important is, uh, is the labor market at this point?
6: I think it is. Uh, And ultimately, to my way of thinking, David, I I move from uh, jobs to retail sales. There's definitely a connection, right? Not a direct connection. But to my way of thinking, uh, an economy is a reflection of Demand, consumer demand. Uh, that's why we have economies to provide uh, consumer products. And so, you know, I look straight from job creation to its effect on retail sales. And of course, we've seen some uh, pretty disappointing numbers. There. Mm-hmm. A lot of it, of course, because of the transition to, um, you know, to, to the internet as opposed to to, to uh, hardline stores. But in any case, retail sales have been rather mm-hmm. slow. And so, you would have to wonder how. Um, You know, job creation has affected that and why it hasn't affected it more positively. But, uh, you know, to my way of thinking, the weak economy in the first quarter is a reflection of sales, even in the face of higher employment numbers that we
0: experience. Bill, there's been no one more than you that has spoken of this nation's financial repression. A few visits ago, you made very clear to us, you look at financial repression as seven, eight years, and I believe your language was even a decade. I spoke to Chairman Bernanke earlier this week. I believe I mentioned to you about his Dillon, South Carolina and the crushing weight on savers and investors. What do they do? Let's revisit this again. What do our listeners actually do about the dearth of yield in their investments?
6: Well, there are a number of ways to do it. I don't think you do it by taking more risk. Obviously, that's uh, one way by uh, taking high yield bonds as opposed to treasuries at the extreme example. Um, that, that would not be my recommendation simply because of the compression of spreads and the inherent risk at these price levels. What do investors do? What do savers do? Um, do they sit it out? Um, Yeah, to a certain extent, I think they do. And they wait for a central bank, hopefully the Fed. They're on the move upwards, although very gradually. They wait for a central bank to to renormalize to some extent. I don't think that's ever going to happen relative to 10 or 20 years ago. We're not going back to a 2% real rate of interest simply because there's too much leverage. Uh, But savers have to be careful as as we move higher in terms of interest rates, uh, simply because there's uh, price declines ahead if they invest yeah. in junk bonds and uh, even long Treasuries. What what do savers do in the long term? Uh, They save more. Uh, What do they do? They work longer. Um, What do they do? They lower their standard of living. And those are the repercussions, basically, of a low interest rate that is a a reflection of central bank policies that have kept interest rates down. That are REPRESSED interest rates, like you talked about for the last six or seven years. Is this
0: generational? In that we migrate back to what you and I saw our grandparents doing in the 20s and the 30s? Do we need to get to use to a 3% coupon being a big deal.
6: Yeah, I think we do uh, for a long time. I think, Tom, to a certain extent, it's a function of demographics and a demographic wave is something that's hard to resist. We know about the boomers and the retirement of the boomers and the fact that uh, older people spend less and therefore uh, the the real interest rate should be, uh, you know, concomitantly lower. We know that globally it's the same situation with Japan as our petri dish. And so uh, with demographics alone and the high level of debt relative to the GDP in most countries, you know, it's a situation where you have to get used to lower interest rates, if only because if central banks raise them too much, like they did in 2005 and six to five and a quarter percent, you can break the bank.
4: The uh, Milken Institute Global Conference just wrapped up, and the Secretary of the Treasury was there in conversation with our editor-in-chief, uh, John Micklethwaite. Excuse one of the me, things, Mr. Yeah.
0: Gross was poolside I, at, the Milken, <laughs> at the Milken
4: Conference. <laughs> Of course. Of course. Uh, But one of the things they discussed was the prospect of there being long bonds, of of, uh, Secretary Mnuchin uh, issuing bonds of 50 years or or longer uh, in duration. And uh, he says there's a working group at Treasury looking into that right now. What should they be thinking about? How should they be approaching whether or not uh, the Treasury Department should, in fact, issue bonds of, of longer duration?
6: Well, simply, I mean, Warren Buffett would simply say if he was asked, I don't know if he's been asked, but he would simply say you should uh, issue debt when interest rates are exceedingly low. And from the Treasury's standpoint, and, you know, they're not a profit making institution, but they certainly look towards you know the attractiveness of either issuing debt at high interest rates or low yeah. interest rates it's better to issue with them when they're low and, and and yes it's being opposed by the street by the investment banking world and to some extent yeah. by the uh, you know in investment institutions like uh, Janus, I guess and, and pimco but the fact is is the treasury should be loading up on 50-year debt and maybe even a hundred year debt simply because uh, at three and a half percent it's about as attractive as it's ever going to get yeah. if, you, if you take out a mortgage you want to take it out at 3% yeah. as opposed to
0: 5%. Right. And so come on. Okay, Bill, this is really important. Everything we've talked That's about before is come absolutely on. useless. <laughs> I want you to explain the geniusity that the San Francisco 49ers gave <laughs> up Mitchell Trubisky of David Gurra's North Carolina to the Chicago Bears and yet took a mother load of draft excellence. Are your 49ers Super Bowl bound because they said no to Trubisky of Chapel Hill? <laughs> Well, certainly
6: there's one or two more uh, wins ahead because of that. That's the the most ridiculous (laughs) trade I've ever heard of. I, you know, if I were a Chicago Bear fan, I'd be hanging my head and. and shame, because uh, they moved up from three to two. They got the same person that they were going to get anyway, and they gave away draft choices. That,
0: that's there the you go. The you, so we, go thank, we thank ESPN <laughs> for their wisdom, because I had no idea what I was talking about their Nick Wagoner over at ESPN <laughs> helping me out there with Bill Gross on how fa- the Bears failed on this mission. Mr. Gross, thank you thank so you much. Thank you very much. With Janice Capel, and of course, uh, an affection for it. What do they, do they want? If they won one or two more games, David, they double, right? <laughs> They doubled their output uh, this year. David uh, Mitchell Trubisky, he's like the real
4: deal. Yeah, well, I mean, highly touted. Who do you follow when it comes to football? I,
0: you... I I follow Manchester United. Oh, sorry, Ron. You know?
4: <laughs> I can't. I mean, I,
0: there's too much. him to, as everybody knows, listening, I mean, there's too much to. There's watch. just too, there's much too much to, to watch follow. right yeah. now. I will say, I don't follow the NBA, and I love watching the Boston Celtics. It's just they're just they're just, they're just fun. I have no idea what I'm looking at, but they're fun.
4: Yeah,
0: <laughs> I like it a lot.